So you can keep that passage open there in Genesis, or sorry, in Philippians chapter two, as we come to study this evening, verses five to eight. Philippians two, verses five to eight. <coughs> and our theme this evening, as you'll see from the bulletin, is the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. We're not quite at the halfway mark of Philippians in terms of verses covered. But we have reached what you could say is the heart of the letter. At this juncture, Paul makes a statement about who Jesus is and what he has done. And it seems that Paul wanted the Philippians to remember these particular words. Uh, you might sometimes people say, if you remember nothing else that I say today, remember this. And I'm sure Paul didn't want the Philippians to forget everything else that he had written. But these particular words that we're studying this evening... Not only did they come close to the middle of the letter, but in the original language there is a, a rhythm and a poetry to them. It seems that Paul wrote these particular words in such a way that they might stick in the minds of those who heard them. From verse 6 to the end of verse 11, it's like Paul forms, you might say he forms a, a U-shape uh, with his words. He, he takes his readers from the heights of heaven down to the depths of the earth. That's where we are at the end of verse 8. To the depths of death on a cross. And then he takes us back up again to the heights of heaven. By the end of verse 11. Paul wants us here to carefully consider. How much Jesus was willing to lure himself. To bring himself down. In service of his people. And then also just how highly exalted, how gloriously lifted up Christ has been again, having completed his service by his Father. In verses 6 to 8, Paul describes what has often been called uh, by theologians the humiliation of Christ. And when we use the word humiliation today, we usually mean some sort of embarrassing Incident that has happened to us. Maybe we, we walk into a room with a tray of food. Hopefully this won't happen at supper this evening. But we walk in with a tray of food to pass around for everyone. And we trip and spill it everywhere. And, or we perhaps say something embarrassing to our boss. And we think, well, there's that promotion out the window. And we feel humiliated. We, it's a moment of embarrassment. But what the, what the word really originally means, what the word humiliation means, is that someone loses their position. That they were in a position of great respect or power or popularity and that position is taken away from them. They go from the higher to the lower. And of, and, and of course there is no more dramatic and significant example of that than the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And yet as we'll see it was a humiliation that Christ chose. He knew exactly what would happen to him. He knew what he would lose and indeed eventually what he would gain. But how much it would cost him to change position, to be in a place of humiliation. He chose to do it out of obedience to his father and out of love for his people. And so as we consider these precious, precious words here this evening, Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8. I want to think first of all about the position Christ chose to give up. The position Christ chose to give up. 
We considered last Lord's Day evening how Paul challenges the Philippians to live as gospel citizens and in particular at the beginning of chapter 2 that they are to humbly serve one another. He says in chapter 2 verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. And he's continuing to bring home that point here. He goes on in verse 5, he's He's, he's continuing to emphasize to the Philippians, we need to bear in mind this is the context for what he's going to teach us here about Christ. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, when it comes to serving one another, when it comes to maintaining your unity, putting other people before yourself, have this kind of attitude, which is yours, he says, verse 5, in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you an example of how to humbly serve one another. Look at the example of Jesus Christ. What did he do? Well, verse 8 says, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And it's interesting there that humility is an action word in the scripture. Uh, Humility is something I'm sure as believers we would all say that we need. We want to be humble. But it maybe sounds like something a bit theoretical. You know, do you just sit around trying to be humble? Well, no, you don't. You, you take action if you, want to, if you want to put humility into practice. It's not something just that you are. It's something that you do. He says Christ humbled himself. He took action to humble himself. Similarly, 1 Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. James 4.10, similarly, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So humility involves action. You put yourself at the disposal of someone else. You leave the position you're in at the moment to go into a more demanding position of service. And in case any of the Philippian church members should think that this was beneath them to be leaving a better position, to get out of their comfort zone, to see to the needs of someone else. In case they thought they were too good for it, Paul says, have the attitude of Christ. Who was in the highest position and humbled himself to the lowest position. The Lord Jesus was from all eternity in the highest position of all. Look what Paul says in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God. The NIV translates it very well there. It has being in very nature God. And that captures something of the fact that this was Christ's eternal state. There was no beginning to this and there will be no end to this. Christ being in very nature God. He always was. And he always will be. It's not that Christ became God at some point. It's not that he ever entered into existence as God. Having previously not existed as God. Jesus always has been. And always will be God. The word there translated form is crucially important. Jesus was in the form of God Paul says. What that means is someone who by outward appearance or by all evidence shows who they really are. They have, they have all the characteristics, they have all the evidence you need to say who or what they really are. 
A creature that has wings and feathers and a beak is a bird. All the evidence that you need is there. You can, you can say definitively what it is based on the form that they have. And Paul is saying here that Jesus from all eternity had all the marks, all the characteristics, all the attributes of God because he was and he is God. Remember the wonderful way John describes it at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning, he says, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus, that eternal word, logos, he was with God, he was God. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are what the theologians would call co-equal, co-eternal. And Jesus there described by John as the word. And that speaks to us, friends, of something of Christ's rule, uh, the, the, the Son of God, the rule that the second member of the Trinity has taken. Scripture describes elsewhere that it was the words of Christ, it is the words of God, the Son, that brought the universe into existence. It was the words of Jesus that formed the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. It was the authority of Jesus that commanded the man to be formed from the dust of the earth. It was God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, God who spoke to Abraham about what would happen through the covenant of grace. It was, it was God, Father, Son and Spirit who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. From all eternity, Jesus occupied the highest position in the universe. He was seated on heaven's throne, receiving the praise and adoration of the angels, the almighty, eternal God. That was the position that he was in. And yet, look at verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What it means is he didn't cling on to his rightful position to avoid doing an unpleasant job. That's what we do, isn't it? We hold on to a job title or we hold on to some busy thing that is occupying our time or we hold on to our position in some other way to avoid serving someone else. Boys and girls, maybe mum or dad tells you it's time to tidy your room. And you say, oh, no, 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 I'm very busy doing this other particular thing. And I'll get to that later. And we avoid doing the job that we're called to do. And it's the same in, sometimes in the workplace. There are people that they'll just find any type of excuse to avoid doing the job that no one else in the workplace wants to do. And it can be the same in the church as well, friends. We, we think ourselves perhaps too important to do this or that role that needs to be undertaken. We so easily think ourselves above certain positions. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus did not hide behind a title or a position. He didn't say, can't someone else do it? He was willing to give up his position as king and God of all. To become the lowliest servant of all. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says the pre-existent son regarded equality with God. Not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death. But in fact as uniquely qualifying him for it. 
What he's saying is that it was actually because Christ knew that he had the power to humble himself and to give himself up for his people that he did it. Rather than saying he was too important to do it. And so the one who had led the Israelites out of Egypt came down to be largely rejected by the descendants of those Israelites. The one who had made the very first man and given breath to mankind came down to be despised and hated and mocked by mankind. The one who had spoken and the the land and the vegetation and the trees came into existence came down to be put to death on one of those trees. The difference between us and Christ is that we snatch and he gives We snatch what we think we deserve. Christ gave up what he did deserve. The adoration and praise and service of all people. And of course it comes out of us at an early age. That natural sinful desire to have what we think we deserve. Little children and even adults sometimes as well. There's just a plate of treats put in front. And what happens? Everybody snatches before anybody else can get the thing that we want. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. Have this attitude, the attitude of Christ. He didn't snatch what he deserved. He gave himself. Are there areas areas in our lives, friends, where we are snatching and grasping so that we would have rather than opening our hands and our lives to give? Are you holding on to some position that you think you deserve Maybe a position of unforgiveness or a position of comfort or a position of excusing sin and you're not willing to give up your position to obey Christ or to serve others. Let's try to appreciate something of the position that Christ willingly gave up. Praise and adoration of angels, the glory of heaven, the sovereign rule over all the earth. And yet he being in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing. That brings us secondly to consider the position that Christ chose to take. The position that Christ chose to give up and secondly the position that Christ chose to take. Paul says in verse 6 that Christ did not grasp, did not hold on to his privileges But instead, verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so Paul here describes Christ coming into the world, what we call his incarnation. Uh, And the word carne is the old Latin word for meat or flesh. And so it's quite vivid if you think about it, Christ becoming flesh, becoming meat, becoming flesh and blood. That's what Jesus did. Uh, coming into the world, being born uh, as a a human being. And in doing this, Paul says in verse 7, that Christ made himself nothing. Some translations use the phrase, he emptied himself. It's very important that we understand what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying that when Jesus became a little human infant in Mary's womb, that he then ceased to be God. And that's not what happened Jesus did not swap being God for being human. That is false false doctrine. 
Now, the word there for emptied in the original, it's, it's really a picture word every time it's used in the scripture. It describes someone being deprived of their proper place or being deprived of, uh, of being given their proper privileges. And so instead of sitting in heaven, receiving worship and receiving adoration, Jesus took the form of a servant. That's the next phrase that Paul uses. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. In other words, he took up a position, a position that was empty of privilege, empty of respect, empty of of glory. He chose to become a slave or a servant. Uh, This picture might help uh, particularly the the boys and girls to to grasp this. But if you've seen the Disney movie Aladdin, uh, there's a part near the beginning where the princess wants to get out of her castle and and see the the real world, see what life is like down on the streets. And so she goes into the market dressed as a poor peasant woman. She has her palace clothing on underneath, but she puts this sort of cloak over herself to disguise herself. And the first thing that she does down on the streets is she takes an apple from a fruit stall, and immediately someone tries to arrest her. She's never had to pay for anything in her life because she's a princess. But as she walks the streets clothed in the garb of a peasant, she is emptied of the privileges of a princess. She never stops being a princess, but her princess clothing is is covered over by the peasant clothing that she wears. And so she is deprived of her privileges. And similarly, friends, when Christ came into the world, his divinity The fact that he is God, that was concealed. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 7. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So he doesn't say anywhere there that he stopped uh, being God. He continued in his uh, divine nature, but he also took on a human nature. And that human nature, that human position was empty of all the privileges of God. And this is what sets genuine biblical Christianity apart from some of the cults and false teaching that might claim to be Christian even in our own community. Jehovah's Witnesses as well as Mormons would claim that Jesus did not always exist. But that and they have different versions of this but they would claim some of them that he was the first thing created by God the Father. That's not what the scripture says. That's not what Philippians is teaching us. It's not what John teaches us. In the beginning was the word. It's not that in the beginning the word was created. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. It's very important that we grasp this friends. Jesus never ceased to be God. He simply chose to add a second nature. He had his divine nature. He took on a second nature. A human nature. Now, of course, there were times when, if you like, the veil slid back a little and people caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory as God. You think of his transfiguration, for example, Matthew 17, verse 2. It says he was transfigured before them. That's before Peter, James, and John. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. You think of his miracles. You remember what his disciples said when they saw Jesus calm the storm, for example, Mark 4, 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
And so at times, these men got glimpses of Jesus' divine glory. But Jesus did not use that divine glory to, 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 to its full extent, you might say. In fact, he made a point of, of keeping that glory concealed. He did not remain in the position he deserved in heaven. He chose to take up a position on earth, empty of privilege and praise. He chose, Paul says in verse 7, to take the form of a servant. The word could also be translated slave, the lowest possible position. And to illustrate what Jesus came to do, you remember what, what he did for his disciples the night before he died in the upper room as they were about to, in the midst of celebrating the Passover. Thirteen men came to the table And before they sat down in that culture, usually the slave of the house, the least important person in the house, did the dirtiest job of the day. They washed everybody's feet. In some ways you could say it was the equivalent of taking your coat in our culture, except that it was far more disgusting than taking your coat. Because people were walking around all day, almost barefooted, in the Middle East heat. And Peter and James and John and Philip and Thomas and all the rest, every single one of them thought to themselves, I'm not doing that. In fact, the disciples more often argued amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest, not which of them was the lowest. I'm not washing his feet. So who did wash everyone's feet? John 13 verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God. He had come down. He had been humiliated. And he was going back to God. Laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel. Tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And began to wash the disciples feet. Wash the feet of men. Who would run away from him. Men who would betray him. Men who would deny that they even knew him. Just imagine the ashamed thoughts that must have been going through the minds of the disciples at that moment. You talk about a cringe moment. He's the greatest one in this room. And he's washing our feet. You see that was Jesus showing them and showing us why he had come. To be our servant. Do you see the total humiliation via the incarnation of God our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ? Came down to this world to experience all the hardship and frustration, to listen to angry words and mockery, to listen to people arguing amongst themselves, to be ignored, to experience pain, to put up with these 12 disciples who argued amongst themselves about which was the greatest. Instead of receiving all the glory that he was due on the throne of heaven. One of the carols actually gets it right. He came down to earth from heaven. Who is God and Lord of all. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see heal the incarnate deity. Except the people didn't see the Godhead because it was veiled. As he took on the posture of a servant. See, we didn't just need Jesus to die. We also needed him to live. We needed him to live 
a life of perfect obedience, perfect service to his Father, perfect keeping of God's law, so that that life then could be offered up as a substitute sacrifice instead of our imperfect lives. But that required Christ to go from the highest position to the lowest position of all. And friends, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is not just for the sake of theory. This is not just to fill our heads with knowledge. Again, look at verse 5, what Paul says. Why is Paul telling the Philippians these things? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. You be like this. You become servant of all. You give up your position. You get out of your comfort zone. You remember Christ in your dealings with one another. And don't grasp on to self-importance or comfort. Humbly serve one another. The position Christ chose to give up, the position Christ chose to take, and thirdly and finally, the death that Christ chose to die. The death Christ chose to die. Paul says in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Some translations have becoming obedient to death. And there's potential there that that would be misunderstood. It's not that death itself had any power over Jesus. It's not, uh, don't read it in the sense that Jesus succumbed to death. What it's saying is that Jesus was obedient to his father even when his father commanded that he go to die. His prayer in Gethsemane, you remember, was Father, not my will, but yours be done. Only a, sin, a sinless man could die for sinful men and women. And that again was the plan of God the Father, Son and Spirit from all eternity. Christ was obedient at every point of that plan, even at the point of death. And Paul here, it comes out in our, in our translations fairly well there in verse 8. Paul is astounded. He's taken aback as he remembers the kind of death Christ had to die. If you look at the end of verse 8, even death on a cross. Death on a cross. The issue for us when we read those words, death on a cross, even if, as, as I trust we, many of us do, we believe them, we know them, but perhaps we just don't quite fully appreciate the horror of, of what we read here. Paul's readers would more likely have grasped uh, the drama of what he says, the shock of what he says. They would have been perhaps more familiar with what he's talking about, death on a cross. But I want to take a few moments just to describe briefly to you what this would have involved. Execution by crucifixion. And I don't do this for the sake of drama or to be sensational, but simply so that we would understand. Paul's readers immediately knew, they might even have seen with their eyes, what this involved. And so we need to have some better appreciation for the death Christ chose to die. The word crucifixion was almost like a swear word, we're told, in Roman culture. The Roman writer Cicero said, Far be it from the thoughts of Romans, never mind the eyes and ears, to think about it. And that was because crucifixion was reserved, of course, ordinarily for the absolute worst of criminals. And it was a form of execution specifically designed to make the physical and psychological agony of death last as long as possible. Before a criminal was even put on the cross, depending on the severity of their crimes, they would be flogged. 
And this was with a whip with several leather strands, uh, perhaps with bone and metal stuck into the strands, which would rip into the back of the victim, traumatizing their bodies, sometimes causing whole chunks of flesh or bone to fly out. When it came time for the victim to be put on the cross, he would usually be nailed there, sometimes tied, but sometimes nailed. And of course, these would be huge pegs, metal, uh, metal shafts that would be used for the nails, put through the most sensitive nerve endings in the human body, the hands and the feet. Remember, your back has already been traumatized, so it doesn't want to be pressed up against the wooden cross. And that combined with the nails means that you're constantly moving and shifting and trying to get a breath on the cross. Crucifixion was, ordinary, was actually, most of the time, death by asphyxiation for most victims. As traumatic as the nails or the flogging was, it was that struggle to breathe that actually would kill you. But it could take hours or even, it's reported in some cases, days. On top of all of that, this was done publicly. The Romans often would execute people on public roadways as sort of a warning to anyone who would cross them. And so as well as that physical trauma, you're experiencing the emotional trauma. You're on display with no clothing. You lose control of bodily function. You're jeered, you're mocked. The Jewish law, of course, declared anyone who died by hanging on a tree to be under God's curse, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. And those words were fulfilled, of course, in ways the original readers of Deuteronomy could never quite have imagined in the death of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about, friends, when he says, even death on a cross. The highest position that Christ was in, receiving the worship of saints and angels in heaven. The maker of heaven and earth, who not only made every blade of grass and every tree in the forest, but knew what each tree was. That he was in that position with all those privileges and he chose to come down to become a slave. To die on the side of one of those trees that he had made. Jesus wasn't the only person, of course, to ever be crucified. The Romans crucified thousands of people. In fact, if uh, the historical records are right, the Apostle Peter was put to death via crucifixion. He actually, some historical records suggest that Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be put to death in the same way as Christ. But what made the death of Christ unique was that no one had ever started in a higher position and come to that lowest of positions. And no one was bearing not just the physical pain. But the trauma of God's wrath. Being poured upon him. For the sin of the world. Despite everything I've just described to you. That was what was most torturous. And most awful for Christ on the cross. That was what made him cry out. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Of the wrath of the father he loved, the father he had obeyed perfectly for 33 years on earth, to have the hell of God's anger poured full strength upon him was worse than all the scourging and mockery. But he did it, friends, to obey his father, 
and to be our servant. Do you believe this evening that your only escape from hell is to trust in the one who experienced hell on the cross in your place? Are we willing to give up whatever tiny imagined fragments of power or importance or privilege that we have to serve someone else? Aren't we so selfish at times, so slow to serve, so quick to make excuses, so susceptible to the lie of Satan that we'd be better looking after ourselves? Have this mind among yourselves, says Paul. Follow the example of Christ. We can't and we don't need to replicate his work. Praise God, his work is unique and it is finished. But we're to have the same attitude, the same servant-heartedness as our Saviour. When we have opportunity to serve one another or to serve our Saviour, may we remember what we've considered this evening, friends, the humiliation of Christ, all that he has done to serve us. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross.